Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Standard Age podcast, a casual conversation about the lives of entrepreneurs and those growing companies. This podcast has been a wonderful supplement to my apparel brand, Standard H, which serves up elevated casual automotive and travel-inspired apparel and accessories to you discerning car and watch lovers. It's been a blast recording these episodes, and if you like what you hear, please visit standard-h.com and sign up for our email list. Our recently revamped website not only hosts every episode of this show, but also allows you to explore the entire product assortment and our latest travel recommendations. As an email subscriber, you will then receive offers no one else is privy to, and I can promise it'll be well worth your while. Just hit pause real quick and hop over to standard-h.com to sign up. We'll be here waiting for you to hit play when you return. Watch collecting is often described as a journey, and along these roads of exploration, you may encounter independently owned brands you've never heard of creating some of the most incredible timepieces. If you're in search of these brands, look no further than Passion Fine Jewelry, owned by former Standard Age podcast guest Tim Jackson. Offering incredible timepieces as well as phenomenal customer service, Passion Fine Jewelry is California's largest independent watch dealer located right here in Solana Beach, just north of San Diego. There you will find Roger Smith, Gronfeld, Kudoke, Habring, Sarpaneva, Roman Gauthier, and many more. If you can't make it to California, visit passionfinejewelry.com for their entire offering online. This episode is also brought to you by Contonement. Contonement's flagship product, the Kerchief, is a perfect medium between a handkerchief and a bandana. Featuring iconic designs such as a Fender Stratocaster and the dashboard of a Volkswagen GTI, these utilitarian cloths are an item that should be a mainstay in your everyday carry. Tuck one in a back pocket or use one as a neckerchief. Visit them at Contonement Co. That's C-A-N-T-O-N-M-E-N-T dot co and use the code STANDARDH in all caps, no spaces, for 20% off their entire online shop. Now let's get to the show. As a watch enthusiast, it's tough not to utterly admire what Max Booser has brought to the industry. Not just his products, but his approach to business and collaboration as a whole. He and I certainly share the mindset of such platitudes of a rising tide lifts all ships and knowing it takes a village, so to speak. And it is his love of community that originally sparked my interest in his company, Max Booser and Friends. There's some interesting background on him naming his company as well. Max's professional journey is fascinating, and though he warned me that he tends to ramble, his talking really only exposed how much about him I didn't already know. He has a wonderful way of articulating why his company is the way it is, and so much so, he often answered questions before I even asked them. I'm proud to share this as I haven't heard Max speak this openly about his company, including the advantage of being scared and welcoming competition. I think you're really going to appreciate what he has to say. When we wrap things up bringing cars into the mix, Max shares his passion for hand-built cars. Though I guess I shouldn't have been surprised, it's also not every day one discusses the likes of TVR Griffiths and Weismans. This conversation was such a pleasure to take part in, and I couldn't be more thankful for Max and his time. We actually chatted for about 15 minutes after ending the podcast portion where Max asked me questions about Standard H, clearly illustrating his openly caring nature. I may be biased, but I feel like the world needs more creative, outside-the-box, thought-provoking business owners who actually care about others and aren't so insular and selfish in their thinking. 
In other words, more people like Max. I'm your host, Wesley Smith, and you're listening to the Standard Age Podcast. I usually chat a little bit ahead of these things, but I have so many questions for you that I do want to just jump into it. And um, again, thank you so much for for taking the time, Max. I really appreciate it. I'm a big fan of MBNF. I'm curious, who is your customer? Uh huh. <laughs> uh, when I started off, I had no idea who would be loony enough to actually follow me on this trail. Um, who is my customer? Uh, he or she is all over the world. That's what I've discovered. I've discovered over the last 17 years, actually. I, I just create products I'm insanely passionate about, thinking nobody's ever going to buy them. Mm-hmm. And then people actually resonate on the same wavelength. So who are those people? Interestingly enough, um, a majority are entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. Um, psychologically, they're people who are very interesting. They're usually outliers in the fact that they don't care what people think of them. If you're going to be the usual big four watch brand customer, you're pretty much sensitive to what people think of what you're wearing. If you're wearing an MBNF, you actually don't care. Right. Um, most people have no idea what it is. Most people don't know the value. Mm-hmm. And most people will think you're absolutely nuts to have spent that sort of money on a watch, which is not one of the big four. So <laughs> you end up with customers who are really interesting profiles, um, pretty much self-asserted and saying, I love it. I, I think what I've noticed over the years is the why of the company is as important as the what, if not more, actually, is why MBNF exists, why how we do things, the values we're trying to defend, that really resonates on our customers. And then often the the product is, oh, I I want a product from them rather than I want that product and then I discover who are the people actually making it. Sure, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Has your customer evolved at all or have they been sort of the same since day one? Well, some have aged like me. Fair, fair enough. So I created the company and the first piece came out 15 years ago. I was, uh, I was 40. I'm 55 now. Um, so I used to think I had a very young customer base. Those initial customers have aged with me. And there's a whole new group of younger customers coming in. Um, geographically, they're still very much spread all over the world. Uh, maybe the, the markets have evolved a little bit. Uh, Southeast Asia used to be 10 years ago by far number one market. Now mm. it's the US. Um, but generally, I, I have no single market which stands out like many of the high-end brands are like, oh, China. We're not even in China. We're not in China. We're not in Japan. We're, we're not in Korea. Uh, it's, we're, we're in the many big, big markets which were, you can't find our pieces. Mm. So, um, no, it's, it's, very, it's very interesting. I, I think also... Uh, Sorry, I can ramble a lot. So, so you cut me short if you think I'm rambling. Um, no, that's what these things are all about. <laughs> so, so I, <laughs> I'm a great candidate for that. Um, so I, um, I noticed also that our customers are mostly, I'm going to say, watch geeks. Mm-hmm. Um, they're people who actually know their stuff. And that's great for me. 
because I've got very few MBNF owners who just buy it because it looks cool. Right. I was a bit scared of that initially, that people would just look, oh, it, it looks cool. Let's buy it. Like, okay, why not? But um, as, as a creator, you, you would like people to understand, your customers to understand what you've gone through and what's gone into it. And that's sure. what happened. Yeah. I, what I love now is I've got a lot of younger, and I'm going to say younger, just because they're more recent co um, collectors who've started off with a Nomos and then gone on to a pre-owned Jaeger and then gone on to et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And they've gone up that food chain and they know what they're buying. And now they, they aspire to a Legacy 101 which is like, oh, and I get so many messages of people like, oh, this, this oh, finally I can afford one, but uh, unfortunately I can't get it because now there's insane waiting lists on there, which is a whole other issue we're, we're facing. I'm not going to say that I'm unhappy as a creator that there are people battling to get our pieces, but now we're getting into a whole other issue of how do we make sure that the, those who actually love what we do can get them? Right. Only flippers. Uh, yeah. that's that's very new for us it's been the last 12 to 18 months so you're saying evolve uh the evolution of customers now we have people who just want to buy them because it's the cool thing to have or because they can make money and oh my gosh how are we going to deal with that is a real 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 important chapter for us sure yeah maybe we'll touch on that slightly a little bit later for sure but uh it's a fairly large and open-ended question here what do you attribute your success to Hmm. Um, oh, it's always difficult to give an answer while we're trying to remain uh, humble. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I could appreciate that. I, I, look, I, what, what I realize is, is the fundamentals of the company mm -hmm. are incredibly important is uh, what I was saying that the why um, it's, we're here, we're here to inspire people to think differently. Mm -hmm. Our first mission as a, as, as a brand, as a company, as a team, is not to create watches. It's to inspire people to think differently. Because we had the courage to do something that virtually or no one had, in at least in our little industry. Mm -hmm. And um, and we would love, and we, it's happening. It's happening. We get so many messages. I get so many messages of people who say, you know what, I'll never be able to wear one of your pieces, but um, I actually decided to create my company. Or I, I, I realized that being different or being weird like, like I was as a kid is okay. Or um, I started drawing again. That, that makes me so happy. This makes all of us so happy. Right. What we also realized is that we, um, we're here on this earth to create a community. Mm -hmm. It has happened without us actually willingly wanting it. But there is a community of people, who, of course, I've assembled to create the pieces. There's a community which is the team internally. And of course, there's a community of owners and of people who resonate on the same wavelength. And um, one of my many wet dreams of, on my bucket list is I would like to create like a, a gigantic TED Talk and invite all our MBNF owners to meet each other. Because as we were saying before, they're really interesting people. So um, like, I would like to share with them talks I've thought were interesting and that they could meet each other 
I don't know if I'll ever be able to. That's one of the many things on my bucket list. Oh, I, I think that's completely plausible. I mean, there's the Red Bar Global Meetup. They've done those before, you know, pre-COVID, obviously. And I'm sure they'll most certainly happen again. I That could absolutely happen. And I think it's a wonderful idea. Um, yeah, it's, it's such a cool thing how watches can bring people together in that way as well. Plus, I'm... You know, I'll speak for them. I'm sure they'd love to hear you speak and and you know do it do a TED talk if you will. I just think that would be remarkable. But but everybody, right? You're right. Yeah. Me uh, curating speakers, which 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 really made a difference on me. Oh, I see. Yes. Yeah, it's not about me being on the on the on the on the stage. Yeah. Stage. Um, no, and coming back to your question. Um, we are one of the very, very, very last uh, watch creators, which still has artisanship at the at the center of its heart. Mm-hmm. Where you can you can love or not what we do, but you cannot dismiss the insane work which goes into it. I mean, sure. all the angling is still done by hand. All the engraving is done by hand. Uh, when we've got rubies, they're chatonnet in red gold, etc. So all those things which made my heart beat faster when I fell into watchmaking 30 years ago, and that right. virtually, unfortunately, most brands have abandoned. Mm. That's also something that we, we offer. Most people don't even realize when they buy one of our pieces. Uh, coming back to what could make uh, people, uh, the, the success, of course, is having the courage to think differently. Sure. Um, well, can I... Can I interrupt you there? Being you're from Switzerland originally, right? <laughs> yeah, that's a bit uh, counterintuitive, isn't it? Right. So, so there is that, and I'm also curious. What did your folks do for work? Um, my my dad was a, was a German Swiss who didn't spend much time in Switzerland in his life. He traveled most of his t- life, uh, and my mom was Indian, and they met up in India and got married there. And I was born in Italy, but then I was really brought up since I'm. I'm three and a half years old in Switzerland. Oh wow! So I was really brought up like a little Swiss boy. I felt like a little Swiss boy in a little village. And, uh, and I was lucky, I think, to have parents who were pretty worldly mm-hmm. and uh, taught me that the world is not what I just saw through my window. Sure. Uh, and, um, and so, yeah, I, I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted to be a car designer when I was a kid. And then I went, I did engineering because I thought if I do engineering, then I can specialize into car design. So um, I did a master's in microtechnology engineering. And then I actually fell into watchmaking. And that was um, maybe 2020. Oh, shoot. 31 years ago. Did you, did you ever work in high school or, or, you know, in your formative years? Yeah. I, well, <laughs> I was a cinema usher. For seven years. <laughs> for seven years? Well, from the age of uh, 17 to 24. 17, I, I'm not allowed to say because that's illegal. It's 18, theoretically. And so um, I would work just to make some pocket money. I had no money. I, my, my parents were completely middle class. Uh, I used to sell hi-fi on, on Saturdays at a hi-fi store. Uh, oh, I used cool. to give institution uh, on lunch breaks uh, at my old school when I was in university. And... Um, so all these, I used to uh, work on all these uh, student, um, how do you call this? Um, ah, when, when students assemble in college to actually create like a little company where they actually do mandates uh, for companies. So we oh. actually 
worked for Hewlett Packard and other things as students, they would give us mandates to, I don't know, do like do a, a market research and things sure. like that. Yeah, yeah. Which uh, we were a minority in Switzerland. People don't do that. They mm. just follow the, the usual stuff. In America, it's so normal that you do a gazillion things during your studies. Right. It was very, um, I think it's just because I was so bored doing my studies. Right, right. Didn't really enjoy them, and uh, and I um, yeah. Actually, the other thing is my, my parents sent me. Uh, they they really um, put a lot of money. They sent me to a private school mm. when I was a kid, and they wanted to give me the best tuition possible. And I, I know it's an enormous sacrifice for them, and I ended up in a school full of way higher than middle class children, and it was very tough for me because I was the only one who had no money. Mm -hmm. all that working on the side was trying just to catch up and when we'd go out and have a meal i would have like that pizza and a and and and, and tap water and they would order that that uh, that steak and and uh, and, and wine and, I, and at the end when they want to cut the bill in i was like oh no god no 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 uh, so i i had a it was a tough money was an issue when i was growing up because i was uh, surrounded by people who had it and i didn't Mm. Um, but um, that probably did shape something in my life. But sure. now then after, at some point in my life, I realized when I did start making a lot of it uh, in my Harry Winston days is that that was really not the goal. I thought it was at some point probably in my life. And right. then when I got it, this is what, what's the point of this? This sure. being free, being happy, being proud was way more important. And, um, and that's how MBNF came to life. Oh, that's wonderful. Were, so were your folks, were, were your parents creative at all? Um, like, where do you think your creativity came from? I, I wasn't surrounded by entrepreneurs or creative people when I was growing up. My dad used to work for Nestle, so a big, big corporation. He was pretty unhappy there, at least his last year, as I remember, because I always used to hear him complain. Um, my mom didn't work. Um, we didn't really do much stuff. <laughs> I think my creativity came from my boredom. Oh, I'm I see. An child, um, so I was always all alone. And my parents lived up in a little village uh, north of Lausanne. And I didn't have any means to, to, to go into town and meet my friends. Okay. So I was all the time alone. Right. So you're dreaming all the time. Just forces you to have this insane imaginary life and creative life and i was drawing all the time and i was imagining i was all sorts of superheroes and i i think that's what sh shaped me more than um any example now i have to say that's what made it very difficult for me to actually create my company mm -hmm. because i didn't think i had it in me mm -hmm. uh i was it, it was didn't seem natural when i the, the idea started entering my head that I could do this or I should do this. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Wow. Well, you sold Hi-Fi, you said. Do you recall the first album you ever bought? <laughs> yeah, it was a late bloomer. It was um, Abacab from Genesis. Oh, nice. Phil Collins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then uh, it was something probably you don't know in the US. It's, it was Jean-Michel Jarre. Okay. Jean-Michel Jarre was one of the first 
prophets of electronic music and he did these massive concerts and um so it's very it shows exactly the insane eclectic tastes i had well yeah was probably Elton John. So I have always had insanely eclectic taste. My wife looks at me and she listens to my Spotify playlist. She's like, what is wrong with you? It'll go from opera through ACDC to funk to, I mean, there, there are few musics I don't really like, very few, but I, I love everything. Well, you grew up next door to Montreux Jazz Festival, right? I mean, how did you attend that often or no? Yeah, in my older age, right. age of course. Uh, and often the, the part of Montreux is that you you discover people or groups that you've never even heard of because right. they're not of your, your era. Sure. And there were some insane concerts. I mean, I, I always remember Isaac Hayes. Yeah. In, wow. Uh, there were like, uh, yeah. Prince did a concert there, which was mind blowing. Nothing of his usual titles, just improvised for like two hours. They were like absolutely insane moments thing. Wow, that's incredible. Well, you mentioned studying, um, uh, you know, at, I, I believe it was the University of, of Lausanne, right? Is where you went? And you, you study micro technology, right? What exactly does that mean? <laughs> I, I get that a lot. Um, What's a, like, what's a typical job that person would get outside of watches, obviously? So it, it was focused on anything which was mechanical engineering meets electronics in small size. I see. So you could have robotics, mm -hmm. have all sorts of things which were associated to that, but it was also um, production management, uh, line management, it was um, semiconductors, it was optical science, uh, it, was, um, it was very broad. And I actually chose it for that because I didn't want to be an engineer. Let's not forget that I wanted to be a designer. So I chose a background which was as broad as possible, which would allow me to understand the, the world of engineering right. and then go and do my thing. And I'm, I'm very grateful that I actually chose that and didn't do something too specific. Sure or whatever right. uh, and so it, it basically what it teaches you is how to uh, how to um, reason mm -hmm. you, we, I mean we had tests where the question was one line and two hours later or three hours later and 10 pages later of reasoning and equations right. you would arrive to a result it was interesting because even though it was a little bit primitive in those days um, you wouldn't get failed if your result was wrong, but mm. if your reasoning was right. Right. It, it's not, a, it was not, so if of course you got the result right, it's better, <laughs> but, but it was, they, they would look at how you reason to try and solve this issue. Right. Something which I'm incredibly grateful because it's helped me my whole life. Sure. While I see that people who in my, again, teaching in university 35 years ago is very different to today. Um, especially the, the university I went to, which has become top notch since, um, mm. is people who went to like business, they, they often would look at them like, what you're saying doesn't make any sense <laughs> because they probably in those days didn't have the mechanisms of right. if then go to, if then, if then, and, and try and find. It was like more copy paste stuff they were taught. 
Mm -hmm. uh, this is how a great marketing plan is. And I think that's helped me because that's not, I haven't done an hour or a minute of marketing studies. And, and it really annoys me because I'm being credited to be like this great marketeer because I hate the idea of being a marketeer. Right. And I'm an engineer and I just look at the world and try and find solutions to the problems I have. Right. And that's what we've done. The whole sure. of MBNF has been about that. So when you left school, though, you started out at Jeje Le Coult, right? Yep. Now, how did, how exactly, what was that process like? How did you get the job and, and like, I mean, briefly, obviously, I mean, we, we can't encapsulate the whole experience here in this short period, but it seems like you climbed the ranks rather quickly. Um, so how did I get the job? Um, uh, it's an insane story. And it, I, I, I tell a lot of youngsters today or at college uh, be aware of everybody around you. Mm. First of all, be aware of what you like and what you don't like. That's the first thing. And, and if you something you really like, try and follow it. And um, I actually bumped into watchmaking because I did a, a project in my third year where uh, it was sociology and, and engineering. And I could choose the title. And I just didn't understand why anybody would spend these insane amounts of money on antiquated technology. So it's because I didn't understand why people spent money on mechanical watches, which really didn't make any sense for me. Uh, so I actually did a study on that. Now, let's forget, not forget we're in the late 80s. The, watch, the mechanical watch world is virtually dead. Right. And I send letters out to all these companies, um, Audemars Piguet and Vachon Constantin, Breguet and Jaeger Lecoultre, et cetera, et cetera. And because the companies were so small, right. the CEOs wrote back to me personally, I'm just a student, right? Right. If you come to us that day, at that hour, I will give you an hour. And I go there and start interviewing them. And, uh, and all these people tell me the same thing. They say, we know what we're doing is totally pointless. We're probably going to die because that's, that was the way they were going. Sure. Yeah. But... If we do, something very beautiful will disappear. So somebody for the first time was talking to me about beauty in my mm. engineering studies. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, if we die, traditions of, of incredible artisanship and mentors who've trained their pupils, who then became mentors and trained their pupils, etc., will disappear. And so somebody started talking about humanity. And that's two things which lacked completely in my studies. Mm -hmm. And that sort of, wow, that resonated. And I, I became crazy about mechanical watchmaking and put all my savings into my first beautiful mechanical watch that was in 1990. I was still a student. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was interviewing with all, and I've told that story many times with uh, big, big uh, companies, Nestle, Procter & Gamble and others. Sure. And, um, and I was skiing one day with friends in, in Verbier. Uh, that's what us Swiss we do. And, uh, and I stopped at, we stopped at a cafe and there, there was Henri John Belmont, the, uh, the CEO of Jaeger who had interviewed and, oh, how are you? Yeah, do you want to have a coffee with us? And he asked me what I'm going to do. And I say, Procter and Gamble, Nestle. And jokingly, I say, well, Mr. Belmont, if, if they don't give me a job, you can always give me a job at Jaeger. And he laughs, I laugh and that's it. And then and a week later, he has me called up. And would you like to meet Mr. Belmo again in the Valet Jew in the, in the manufacturing? I'm like, yeah, sure. So I go and meet him. And uh, it's the interview of my life. He's, he's going to 
he's gonna interview me for basically three hours, I think, without asking me a question. He's basically selling me his dream of how he's gonna save this company. Because in those days, and I had to do exactly the same thing later on in my life, nobody wanted to enter that industry. Nobody wanted to go and live in the Valley Jew. Nobody would definitely want to work for Jaeger. And, right. um, and so he sold me his dream. And then he said, look, I've got a job for you. Uh, I need a young engineer who's going to be my product manager. We're going to create that job. And you and I, we're going to create all the products together. And uh, That's incredible. It's a crazy story. So I owe so much. I mean, Henri-John Belmont is um is the single most important uh, it's difficult to say was it but he's one of the most yeah, important he's, people. he's up there <laughs> yeah because he, he took a gamble uh he probably saw in me something i didn't mm -hmm. and he offered me a job and he welcomed me into that family and it was really a family and um and i found uh, i found a place i was finally happy in i had a purpose right it was trying to save that company and working with insanely passionate people because in those days we're talking 30 years ago there were nobody in the watch industry because there was glam glitz or money because there was none right so if you're working in the watch industry you were nuts because and, and and when i chose that job everybody around me including my parents questioned me like are you really sure about what you're doing right why would you want to go and work for that soon to be bankrupt company and um and yeah, I, it's a leap of faith and I owe him everything. So how did you leave then? I mean, you mentioned Harry Winston earlier. You became managing director there at the ripe age of 31. <laughs> what? Which today is old because everybody does stuff so early. Oh God, I know. Just the pressure. Yeah. So tell me about that departure. Like, how did you feel? I'm assuming they approached you or did you? Yes, it was um, actually all the headhunters would approach me yeah. uh, I would say no uh, mm. first of all it's always usually the same sort of jobs in a different company for more money and you're like no this is my family I'm not going to just leave for money that's not the point yeah. and then they, uh, Egon Zender who's one of the uh, top three headhunters they only do like chief executives um, they they uh, they called me and I was still just a little manager and um, they interviewed me for an hour and a half and said look you're you're 10 years too young but you could probably do this job. So man, what in the US probably would be president or something like that. In, in Europe is managing director of sure. Harry Winston's line pieces. So I just laughed and shrugged it off. And, and they said, look, you should try these interviews because anyway, they're 40 candidates, just try. Right. So I went there completely uninhibited right. because I didn't have a chance in hell. And for four months in every interview, I just said exactly, spoke my mind like brutal honesty, no filter. Yeah. Um, amazingly, they gave me the job. Now, I understood a little bit later that probably why they gave me the job is because Harry Winston Timepieces was virtually bankrupt. Uh. Um, I think they maybe felt bad of hiring some seasoned executive who had a family <laughs> if that company was going to go bankrupt in the next six months. And um, so they, they also took a gamble. I, uh, mm -hmm. Robert Benvenuto was the COO and, uh, and Mr. Winston, Ronald, took an incredible gamble with me. So that's my, my life has been about people believing in me when I didn't have half of their hope about myself. Wow, that's incredible. 
yeah uh, it was a rough it was a rough year i can tell you that yeah it was a very very rough year um all the wins were were against us uh it was every time i'd open a drawer it would explode in my face open a cupboard the <laughs> skeletons would fall on me it was really <laughs> probably the roughest year of my life wow and um and so with that little team i inherited we were eight we we took us about 18 months to stabilize the company and then from 2000 to 2005 it was it was rock and roll that was five those again five years which formed me taught me that i actually could do this i mean multiply the company by 10 uh, create the opus create the factory hire i mean went from eight to 80 people in five years sure wow we were incredibly profitable when i left um and uh it taught me that i actually had something in me which maybe would allow me to create my own company one day so that's one of the many things I owe to uh, to the Winston family. Okay, so there's a couple of things there to unpack. What? How did you stabilize the company? Oh, oh God. I mean, in short, like like kind of loose terms. When I arrived, um, there was like, first of all, um, I have to think back because it's starting to date back. This is 25 years ago. So um, geographically, we, we had like... Uh, one retailer who's doing like 75% of our business and buying everything at cost. Hmm. have to have done business school to realize that that's yeah. not a very good business. Hmm. Um, we were, it was, the, the products um, lacked, I mean, no, actually, I'm going to go take a step back. The whole why of the company was, was, was wrong in the fact that there's this incredibly high-end jeweler, because in those days, Harry Winston was the, one of the greatest jewelers in the world, yeah, had course. this watch division where everybody wondered why they were doing watches. The watches were not at the level of the jewelry, which was super high end. So first of all, was bringing the watch division and the watch product up to the same level. And I remember telling Mr. Winston that it's either you do the greatest watches or you don't do them because they're actually destroying your brand. So you should actually, I remember saying that in the interview, you should actually stop that entity. Um, the, so how would we do that? So we, we were not a manufacturer. We had no watchmakers. Um, we, had, we were jewelers. So we needed a, a concept, and that was rare, um, rare timepieces. So it was rare diamonds. That made sense if you had a, a, a lady's watch. So you had incredible, beautiful DE, flawless, VVS1 uh, diamonds from Harry Winston. Okay, sure. that was a given and rare movements and i have to thank ronald winston to have followed me on that because most jewelers would have thought in those days what why why would we actually spend these insane amounts of money in really complicated movements and i told him if you, if you don't if you just have quartz watches you're just an accessory and you'll always be considered an accessory so let's do what the others don't do already in those days i was a contrarian like let the other jewelers always just do quartz watches or simple automatic movements. Mm. Let's create incredible complications and then bring the watch brand at the same level as the jewelry brand. So we started working with like Agenor already and Jean-Marc Vidoresh doing all the retrogrades. And of course, then there was the Opus. And it was all trying to, to showcase that Harry Winston was only trying to go for the best. Right. So Opus was born as a result of that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Opus was more born out of... Uh, trying to help François Paul the year he was launching his brand 
Um, let's today he's he's a legend and an icon. Sure. John, therefore, uh, 21 years ago, when he tried to launch his brand, nobody knew who he was, and his first year was a little bit tough. And I remember we 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 met like for two three dinners that that year, and uh, and he was telling me how tough it was. And one one of the actually I bumped into him on we were on the same um, our booth at Basel Fair was the same level uh, one and one evening, and um, I said, well, why don't we do something together? And and Harry Winston can tell the world what a genius you are, because it will have ten times more impact than if you try and explain your your talent. Right. Uh, oh yeah, why not? And that's how it started. Great. Well, what what's your relationship like now with Francois Paul? <laughs> uh, we he, he's had, we've had our ups and downs. We'll just put it there. Okay. Uh, we're back on an up, I will I will say. Oh, good. Enough said. <laughs> I can also edit any of this out if you ever need me to. So no problem. No, 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 no. Um, I'm speaking my mind. And yeah, it's... yeah. All good. Um, well, I'd say MBNF is the epitome of collaboration. Obviously, you have and friends as a part of your name. Um, was this motivated by your time at Harry Winston, you know, in helping FP and, and that kind of thing? Like, where, like, how did that come about, even just from a naming perspective? I think it's a it's a conjunction of it's a good question. I don't think I haven't had that question. Uh, it's a conjunction of many factors. The first is um, my mum was a Zoroastrian, so a Zoroastrian is a Zoroastrianism is the oldest monotheistic religion in the world. It dates back to Persia before the Jews, before the Christians, and wow. they abide by simple principles of good thoughts, good words, good deeds. Mm. And treat people the way you want to be treated. I was brought up that way. So that was already something which was in me. Yeah. Uh, and I'm not at all a religious person, I have to say. Not right. That, those simple principles were, were important. Mm -hmm. So um, if I'm a supplier to a brand, I would really like that that brand actually credit me. It's called empathy. Well, right. of course, then we should treat people the way you want to be treated. I think the other reason was um, realizing that whoever you are, however brilliant or not you are, you are nobody all alone. Mm -hmm. And that um, I had these crazy ideas that, that they were just going to stay crazy ideas if this whole posse group crew of incredible talent wouldn't join me. So I didn't, from the day one, I didn't want the brand to be my name. Mm -hmm because it's wrong. It just felt wrong. And actually the brand was supposed to be called BNF, not MBNF. Uh, and when I went to register it, when I was still working at Harry Winston, <laughs> I went to register the, the, the brand. Um, the, the, the attorneys were like, the IP lawyers were like, you can't do this. I'm like, why, why, why not? Bell and Ross. Bell and Ross had registered BNR everywhere around the world. So watch brand BNR, and I was arriving. Watch brand BNF. Of course, they were gonna they were gonna block me everywhere, and that's what I would have done if I was them. They never did, by the way. But then the the, the IP lawyer said you have to find another name. Sure. And I said like, if I put M, so <laughs> my, my, uh, can we do MBNF? Uh, because I didn't want. It seemed wrong that there's more focus on me because there are two letters for right. me. Uh, and, um, and, but that's, I had to do it. So that's sure. how it came to life. Oh, that's funny. Well, uh, 
How how was it originally financed? I don't need numbers. I'm just kind of curious. Well, I'll give you numbers. So I I had put aside over my 14 years of working, but mostly my seven years at Harry Winston, I'd put aside $900,000, which is an enormous amount of money for most people. But it's a drop in the ocean if you want to create a mechanical watch brand, and a, meaning a brand which creates its own movements. And with quality, yeah. Standard movements from others. And I knew it. I knew I didn't have enough. So um, I put in everything into the company, and I thought maybe I could get away by actually convincing some of my retailers to pay me a third in advance um, my first HM1 based on drawings. So uh, I created the company in July 2005. In November, I more or less had the finalized design uh, following the engineering, which had already been done. And um, I went around the world for about three weeks to meet all my most important Harry Winston retailers in those days and trying to sell them my new project. And six out of many actually were crazy enough to say not only yeah we will buy those watches and yes give me your bank account and i will ship wire you the money yeah you years before you deliver and uh, that again again people i have to be very grateful to um it's I, it's never it had never been done before in my industry and i don't think it's ever been done since right uh, and i had no backup meaning when the first guy told me no I was destroyed. I suddenly, because, you know, you, you get, when you create a company, a uh, startup like that, and you fall in love with your idea, and I see that with a lot of other guys who want to launch their brands, you don't listen to reason. Right. You've got these crazy ideas that, oh, it's going to work. You're in total right. denial. It's, um, what, what did Steve Jobs have this, what is it called? Um, reality distortion complex. Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You think that what you believe is actually going to happen. And, uh, and I, I completely suffered from that. Yeah. When the first retailer said, no, I'm not going to pay you. He said, I'll order, but I'm not going to pay you. My world just dissolved. It was like, yeah. God. Right. Um, and luckily, then the second one did, and the third one did, and the fourth did, and the fifth did, and the sixth one did, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so that's how we started. So I, uh, that brought another about $700,000 into it. Uh, so I, I, my company was just me and my flat for the first two and a half years, not giving myself a salary or living off my, my, my cash I put aside. Sure. And, um, and we were nearly bankrupt in June 2007, two years later. And luckily, uh, it's all 1.6 million had gone. Right. And, um, and I managed to deliver, we managed to deliver, uh, we were two by then in the company, um, the first two pieces on like mid-June. And, um, and then uh, the first year, 2007, we managed to deliver the, the 25 HM1s we'd committed to. Right. In the difference. So I'd, I'd got one third. So I was getting paid the two thirds. The only problem is that the one third was my margin. That's not a good business model either. <laughs> Delivering products at cost uh, for the first year. So that was right. very tough also. And then 2008, we managed to start delivering products with margin and the HM2 arrived and everybody was going bananas. 2008 was very close to what we're living now, right. meaning 
complete euphoria and everybody was buying everything and anything at any price. I just never forget that in September 2008, a thing called Lehman Brothers went down. Yes. Yeah. And then everything crumbled. So with the industry being where it is now, my team, who's often much younger than me and haven't lived through that, don't understand why I'm totally paranoid <laughs> and going, this can't last forever. This is not possible. Right. See when this is going to stop, when the music's going to stop. Yeah, history potentially repeating itself, I understand. Uh, you know, you've talked a bit about the whys behind, you know, having people think differently, right? And 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 I actually had that written down as a question for you, is what is the why behind MBNF? And, <clears throat> excuse me, you've alluded to it. However, it also, to me, seems like part of it is pushing the envelope of how we display time as well as how we actually interact with a watch, not just thinking differently. But again, I'm speaking for myself here. Um, beyond the kind of ethics behind the brand and, and the ethos, if you will, but um, do you have any specific intentions when it comes to the design as far as like how the watches are perceived by the wearer or just fans in general? So 17 years ago when I started this whole adventure, if you'd ask me what my why was, my why was to um, create mechanical sculptures. It was to deconstruct traditional beautiful watchmaking and reconstruct it into a 3D sculpture, which gives time. Mm -hmm. Which, if you think about it, that can't be a why, that's the what. Right. And, um, but that was what I believed I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize is that the why was also for me to be proud and is to be happy and to, to, to live a life, professional life, which was in sync with my personal life. But that I didn't, I hadn't integrated all that. Sure. Um, today, I can tell you that doing just different 3D watches is not at all why we exist. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, it's actually much broader. We call it challenge and try. Um, is not only do we look at our industry and try to challenge it and try stuff which has never been done, but we challenge ourselves consistently and constantly if we've been doing the same thing for two three years even the way we think the way we function we we challenge it and sure. therefore my whole team is in that mindset i have to hire people who are capable of assuming that whatever they're doing right now i'm going to challenge or they should challenge which would even be better um, and and try and do it differently so take take the, the the mad one if you see what it is this $3,000 watch we just came out with uh, last year. Yeah, I want to talk about that for sure. Yeah. So, so that, that whole piece, um, no sane entrepreneur who's now got a following and, uh, and a consistency, uh, which is recognized for what it does, which is this very high end, beautiful hand finished, hundred, $150,000 pieces of watchmaking would go and do what we've just done right but we do it because that's 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 how we function yeah so actually so if you think about it i, I created first the horological machines which are my 3d kinetic art pieces then when people started recognizing it i go and take everybody i'll get everybody on the wrong foot by creating a legacy machines which is a round watch with a white dial and and Roman numerals. And I used to remember when I said, um, when I created it, um, MBNF is like, 
if you want a, a round watch with white dials and Roman numerals, go and see all the other guys. Right. Five, six, seven years later, I come up with my, my piece. So then we do that. Uh, then we start creating a, the mad galleries when we're totally clueless of what a gallery is or even retail. Nobody in my team, me included, had ever done retail. Right. So we create, create these crazy mad galleries and kinetic art. Um, we, we start designing clocks which look like robots and music boxes looking like spaceships. And uh, everybody knows that there is no more market for clocks or music boxes and definitely not shaped in those weird shapes. And that actually resuscitates and helps Lippe and Roche get out of more or less bankruptcy and, and actually thrive. So we have no idea. We try stuff. Um, then when all of this seems to be working very well, uh, I decide to take an enormous risk and create a, a watch for women, which is actually the watch I wanted to create for my wife and my daughters. Mm. And uh, it's everybody knows that women want uh, ultra thin, non-complicated watches. And we create a two centimeter high flying tourbillon. <laughs> and, and, and it actually is a success. Again, a success at our level. Let's not go crazy. I mean, that's 25 to 30 pieces a year. Now, yeah. that's, that's the beauty of having a very small company is success doesn't have to be nuts. Right. Finding 25 customers a year is, is already a great success. Now, of course, if I was a, a 50,000 watch a year company, would I have the guts to create what I'm doing? Yeah. I'm not sure about that. How, how many pieces are you creating annually, average? So in 2013, uh, when my first daughter was born, I decided the company's not going to grow anymore. And that year, we were doing about 280 watches a year. Okay. And so we've stuck between 215 and 280 from 2013 to 2021. Right. And now the demand being absolutely, utterly bonkers and waiting lists going to three, four, five, ten years on some references. We, we, we have to increase. So we're trying to increase by 60, 70 watches a year, mm -hmm. which is peanuts compared to the demand, but we just can't stay where we were. It doesn't really sure. make any sense. Um, so we're, we're, we're going to try and do about 340 pieces this year. Great. And then we'll take it from there. That's great. Why is collaboration important to you? So there, there are two ways of two sorts of collaborations. Every MBNF is a source of collaboration. The fact that I just have the idea and all these incredible artisans, watchmakers, engineers transform it into a reality. So there's a collaboration to create. And then there's the collabs where um, I, I basically um, bring ideas to other manufacturers. That's what we call co-creations, like, like the Lippe clocks or the Roche music boxes or Carondash pens and all sorts of other things we're working on. And then there's another collaboration where I invite creators I admire to change my creations. Mm. And that's the, that's the ultimate, that's the pinnacle because that's really letting go. Yeah. Creator... You, I mean, and you, you speak to any creative directors or owners who are creators, they, their babies, nobody is allowed to touch them. Right. It's my way or the highway. 
So when you get to a level where you accept that somebody else modifies something you thought was already great, mm-hmm. they bring their DNA into it and therefore create something which you would never have done, that's when you realize you've, you've reached a level where you've let go. And, uh, and that's when, for typically I'll ask friends or like Alan Silberstein or Stepan Sarpaneva or the H. Moser guys or um, even Bulgari recently. I mean, I was terrified, terrified to work with a $3 billion company uh, to, to come and change one of my, my babies. And they were incredible. I mean, that team was amazing. So you have to work with people you admire. You need to have common goals. You cannot have one of the, the, the two entities wanting to make money because a great collab is never about money. Mm-hmm. It's about great products. Mm-hmm. And you, 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 can't be, you can't have one saying, how can we make money? And the other one trying to do, let's create something incredible. So that, how you have to, that weeds out a lot of potential collaborations. And, um, and then you, you need to be very different because it's pointless to, to, to create a kid with somebody who's exactly like you. Right. It's when you have, I mean, maybe it's my fact of being issued from I mean, a German <laughs> person that I, I sort of apply that. So I try and do collabs with people who are very different from me in their creative process. Right. Sure. Sure. Well, when you're consistently pushing the envelope from a design, manufacturing, et cetera, process, like how do you mitigate stress? Because there's got to be things that just like, I'm sorry. Stress is the, is the adrenaline. Um, being scared is the adrenaline. It, once you start feeling in your comfort zone, at least me, I know a lot of creators not like that. Yeah. When I start feeling that this is easy, I freak out. I'm like, this is easy is boring. Easy doesn't bring pride uh, and pride being the ultimate goal. Mm. And um, I've, I've, in, my, in my 17 years, I can tell you that every time I created a product where I was terrified, it's been one of our most important creations in our history. Not, maybe not always sales-wise, but it's what people remember. Mm-hmm. While the pieces... I thought, oh, okay, let's do a variation and I'm sure people will want it. Usually have been flops and everybody's forgotten about them and their resale value is not where it should be. So I, it's taught me that just, just take that adrenaline risk, be terrified, and that's what will, you will be proud of on the last day of your life. Yeah, that's sound advice, I would say. Um, you have mentioned your collaboration with Moser. And uh, I either read or heard you in an interview once talk about how you took a lot of a risk to do that collaboration. Do you remember what that risk was? Well, the, the risk was that we did a double collab, meaning mm. I, I invited uh, the H. Moser team to modify one of my pieces. That's, that's normal with me. But then Edouard Melon, who's pretty brilliant, um, looked at me and said, what's in it for me? I said, sorry? Oh, I see. Dials and whatever. So you're going to have a collab MBNF and H Moser, but what does H Moser get? So you have to do something for me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, Edward, you create round, more or less classic watches with cool <laughs> dials. And uh, 
I love what you do. Although I was, in, I would invite you to to modify one of my team, my mind pieces. But what can I do for you? And he said, I don't know. Come on, think about it. And that's how we designed for them the the watch with the the dial the, uh, the dial at an angle. And we we took them out of their comfort zone, and they were very courageous because and they had to completely modify a movement re-engineer it, bring the cylindrical hairspring into that tourbillon, et cetera, et cetera. I see. Uh, it, I was, see. Um, it was a big leap of faith for them. But again, um, it's, um, it, it was, uh, it was oh God, it was totally worthwhile. I think we'll both agree on that one. Um, yeah. And uh, it was interesting because when we presented them, it was in Dubai, a bit more than two years ago. The world was a different world in those days. Um, right. Everybody was pre-COVID, just pre- before COVID, and everybody was going bananas, and everybody wanted to order by order them by fives or tens. And Edward looked at me like, "Oh, what, what else are we going to do? Are we going to launch new colors?" And I was like, "No, <laughs> we have to accept that we've done something pretty amazing. It's been a long odyssey to get there, but even though it is a success, a baby, because it's a success, we have to accept that we're not going to do it anymore." Right. So yes, I would love, and we are going to work together with H Moser on other products in the future, but we sure. have to leave a couple of years go by and not do the same thing. Yeah. Last year you collaborated, like you mentioned before, uh, with Fabrizio, the creative director of, of Bulgari. You guys met in 2017. Is four years a common length of time for a collaboration to come to light or no? Actually... No, it, I mean, collaborations can last. I mean, people have been bumping into for decades right. where we, at some point we'll work together. But in this case, it was it was interesting. I actually met him for the first time in Dubai Watch Week 2017 and um, introduced myself and we went to have a coffee and and I discovered that he loves what we do, which was really nice because I'm a big fan of his work. Mm-hmm. And uh, And he started sketching at that table, at that coffee table, and like, oh, it would be cool if anyway we started. He's, he created this really cool HM5 Bulgari, which will never see the light, but it was really cool. And then <laughs> other things, and um, oh, maybe uh, with the Bulgari touch, we can do this. Huh? And uh, and um, and we just had such a ball. It was such an f- amazing moment, but it was, we all looked, we both looked at each other going, is this gonna happen? And he said, no, probably not. Right. And, um, and then two years later, I bump into him at the Grand Prix of watchmaking of Geneva, and he's with Antoine Pain, who just been appointed the new managing director of Bulgari Watches, uh, and uh, who introduces himself. And I just look at him and jokingly, I said, so can we do a collab? And he says, yeah, why not? So I just think he's being polite. Right. Uh, and then he looks at me, we, we continue talking, and he looks at me and says, are you going to be in Dubai Watch Week um, in three weeks? Yeah, yeah of course. So he said, like, okay, let's, let's meet up. And we have breakfast with Antoine and Fabrizio. Uh, so therefore, uh, two years later, that's 2019. And Fabrizio is again sketching like crazy. That's all he does. I mean, he's incredible. You, you, you spend 10 minutes with him and he starts sketching. Right. And Antoine probably detects that there's a, there's a great chemistry happening here. Mm-hmm. And he says, okay, let's do this. Very I cool. I just with the flying tea, which is just actually won the the grand prix of watchmaking mm-hmm. and uh, i said well look guys i'm not a jeweler i've just created this lady's watch would you like to rework it and they said yeah and this is now november 2019 
And when we re we actually really started the project in the middle of lockdown. So March 2020, four or five months later, the, the world stops and we start doing Zoom uh, meetings. It's the beginning of Zoom. I've never even heard of Zoom. Yeah, same, same. Yeah. Um, and Fabrizio is sketching on his side of the Zoom. And suddenly he shows a drawing with, with what's going to become the Allegra. And the whole team of Bulgaria is that side. My team is this side. And we like, go, oh, yeah, okay, let's do this. Wow. It's a Zoom baby. It's a crazy. It's a Dubai Watch Week and Zoom baby. That's very cool. Very, very cool. How do you view competition? Very favorably. We, 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 need, we need more people like us. We can't, you know, if you look at artistic movements, they yeah. were never created by one single person. Yeah. Single artist. If you take the Impressionists, they, they completely modified the world of art, which has been pretty much the same for a good century, if not more, mm -hmm. because there were a whole group. There was Monet, Manet, Renoir, Cézanne, Pizarro, and they were, they were pals, and they, they, were, they were all together, and they were saying, excuse me, fuck the system. Yeah. It's our art. And we, we need more people to believe that watchmaking can be different. And we're, we're a few of us, don't get me wrong, huh? And, and I don't see them as competition. I see them as friends. I see them together. We're going to change this world. If you take the likes of the Urwerk team and the Ressens uh, and Benoit and others, we're, we're, we're slowly, it's taken us time. We're right. changing the perception of what a watch could be. And right. so all the merrier. But, and I insist on that, I, we congregate only with people who share the same passion and that passion has to be incredible products and not being successful at business. Sure. There are also brands created with shareholder money and, and mercenary CEOs who think, oh, we can make a bit of money out of this. That's not what we congregate. We don't congregate with those guys. Right, right. Well, again, Max, I want to be sensitive of your time, um, but I do want to run through some of these questions. Um, not really rapid fire, but kind of. Um, your rotor looks like a battle axe. Where does that come from? Rendizer. So okay. Rendizer, you've probably never heard of in the US. It was um, late, uh, is it late? No, early 80s, is one of the very first uh, Japanese manga where there was a transformer robot. And Rendizer was, um, was a prince of another planet who'd arrived on Earth, <laughs> transformer robot and uh, who, would, who was actually the last um, defense for the Earth against the other horrible aliens who had destroyed his planet and they were coming to destroy Earth now, right. uh, the Golgots. And, um, and so I was 12, 13, and every day when I came back from school, there was 20 minutes of Grandizer saving the world, and I would look at that while I was eating probably my chocolate biscuit, and, uh, and then I would go into my room and either work or, or play. And, um, and so I was brought up on, I was, I was grandizer. Right. I, I, I had this whole thing of saving the world. Yeah. I still a little bit have that complex. And, um, and so initially when I designed the, um, the, the rotor of IHM-1, 
And I worked with the incredibly uh, great and competent designer called Eric Giroux. And he's still, I still work with Eric for the last 17 years. Um, we, we always work a little bit like a competition where um, on different details, I'll say, you, you think about it, I'll think about it. And we, we meet and we compare notes and I will basically choose the idea I think is better. Uh, it, cool. It's often his, sometimes it's mine, so often it's mine, it depends. And, um, and he came up with a rotor, which was very technical with screws and bolts and things like that. And I came up with Grandi's battle axe and he looked at me and said, yeah, why not? Cool. And, um, and that's how it started. But it's inter interesting is that on first HM1, I never mentioned the influence because I was actually, um, I was ashamed of it because you don't create a $180,000 piece of high-end watchmaking putting Japanese transformer robot mangas into it. <laughs> right. It, it took me till about HM2, where I, I reproduced the same rotor and a journalist actually one day asked me, he's like, what's the influence of that? And I went, Grandizer. I said, sorry, it's Grandizer. And luckily for me, the journalist uh, is half French, half Chinese, and it was Hong Kong. And actually it wasn't, it was in, in I didn't even know the name Grandizer. In French it was Goldorak. So I said, Goldorak. And he said, oh, Goldorak. And he'd been brought up in France. He's like, oh, I love Goldorak. And, uh, and I realized that there's a whole generation of old fogies like me today. <laughs> brought up in Europe, uh, if you ask Italians, uh, French, Lebanese, um, who uh, my age, we were all brought up on Goldorak. Oh, wow. That's crazy. That's so cool, though. I mean, but again, it's the story, right? And the familiarity and all that, 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 that makes these things special. How do you decide how many of each design will be made? Is it a manufacturing constraint at all? Or is it is it just you pick a number, how do you, how do you decide? Rule of thumb, it's, mm. it's been um, for, I mean, except for the first two iterations, uh, which I saw, so, so HM1, when I launched it, I knew that I needed to do a hundred movements to amortize the insane investment. Okay, yeah. Whatever happened, I, so I announced, it's gonna be a hundred movements and it's gonna take us, I don't know, four or five years to do them. Um, then HM2, I was emboldened because HM1 sold well and it was euphoria. And so my very first two pieces of HM2, I, I said limited edition of 125 each. And my retailers went ballistic and they ordered them by tens because it was that era. Yeah. And then the world collapsed. And I think we barely made 46 or 47 of each oh, wow. because nobody wanted to buy them. Right. That sort of, ooh, that, that burnt me. So since then... I've always done limited editions where I think it's much less than what I, I think the market wants. Mm. And uh, so if I think we can sell 50, I'll do an edition of 25. And um, so that's been the case for all these years. And now in the last two years, we've shifted and virtually, and you're gonna see that specifically this year, we started last year, virtually everything we're coming out with is more or less not limited. Does that affect pricing at all, MSRP? No. Why I'm doing that is it, it, it was because uh, actually in the watch I'm wearing, which is my Perpetual Evo, which we launched uh, in three times 15 in Zirconium in 2020. It's so good. I love it on the white strap. It's awesome. It's so good. So that piece, when we launched, 
something happened. I remember it was our, our U.S. retailer, well, one of our U.S. retailers, Stephen Silver. Okay. We invited eight of his VIP customers to his home for a pre-launch. So we'd actually sent the watch down there so he could show it to his VIPs. And uh, his allocation was, I think, two or three oh. pieces out of the 45. Yeah. And something happened. What happened is that the eight of his VIP customers who came to dinner at his place wanted to buy the watch. And that was a horrible moment for Stephen <laughs> because you're inviting people to your home to present something. They say, I want it. And you're telling them you can't have it. Right. <laughs> so six out of eight were completely upset with him and said like, what the hell? I mean, why are you even inviting me? And when he related that to me, I was like, oh my gosh, that's right. horrible. I wouldn't want to live that. So from there, we started saying, okay, we're not going to limit them, but it's going to be limited production de facto. We still only make probably 25 LM perpetual EVOs a year on the new titanium version, which is not limited. And, and if you can't get it this year, you'll maybe get it next year. If you can't get it next year. So now I think we're at 2025 now. Oh, wow. Um, which is about three years. Right. Um, and um, so you, you still can get it but we're not going to insult you <laughs> and say you can't get it. I invite you and then tell you you can't get it. Right, right. Well, I do want to talk about the Mad One you released. Uh, then the Mad One Red came out. Um, do you characterize this as, and I'm using quotes here, an entry-level piece? Like, how do, you, how do you characterize it? How did it even come about? Well, first of all, it's not an MBNF, and I have to really uh, emphasize that. It's a different brand, right? Different brand. It's yeah. actually brand it's a it's a it's an it's what we call them editions when when art galleries have artists they some time to time will finance an edition with them mm -hmm. and uh, and that's an edition so it's it's if you look there's nothing written mbnf anywhere on it right why even though it's been thought up by the same team it is not at all made in the same process okay We've got a, a miota movement which has been modified in switzerland but it's a miota uh, which is a great industrial movement but it's sure. miota um, the, the, um, all the, the, uh, the case is made in Asia. Um, so we're, we're not at all at the levels of insane um, hand finish, et cetera, that we have on MBNF. Sure. Now, why did I create that is, is for my friends and family. Because there's a very big frustration as a creator where everybody you love cannot own one of your pieces. Right. And, uh, and so I've been working for many years on something which would be at a lower price point. I created actually in 2014 what it looks like the Mad One today. Uh, and it was going to be a whole new brand. Mm -hmm. So I created a whole brand around this and there was going to be all sorts of other products. And I killed that project in 2018. Mm -hmm. Why? Because I realized in 2018, I don't have enough time for my family. I don't have enough time for MBNF. I'm consistently being feeling guilty one way or the other. Right. How am I going to create a second brand? And actually, and you realize that when you create a brand, it's forever. Right. You can't create a brand and then stop it. it that, that in those days, at least, that didn't exist. So we just we just shelved the whole process. I mean, we've been working on it for four years. Oh, wow. Then in, in 2020, early 2020, when lockdown happened and we were doing Zooms with the team, brainstorming, how can we save our company? Uh, 
um, somebody said, well, we've got this product we've designed and already engineered. And I'm like, dude, <laughs> I'm not going to create a new brand. The world is falling apart. Uh, and during that, that brainstorming, I, I sort of said, well, maybe there is a system. The solution we call it a mad edition we've got mad galleries it's an edition so we just do a one drop right. and we do that that was in march 2020 by june 2020 we realized that the world is maybe falling apart but we're doing incredibly well even though we didn't expect it yeah. so i said okay well we'll do this and we'll use it as a thank you so we only allowed our friends meaning the the all the, the suppliers who worked with us for the last 17 years and the tribe, all the MBNF owners, to have access to it because we are only going to make a few hundred pieces. Right. And uh, it's never been seen as a business. And um, and so that's we we just sent emails out in June last year to the people who were allocated the watches. We right. never put it on our website. We never put it on social media, and the world went ballistic. Yeah, that's just the kind of thing that would do that. <laughs> Now, did it didn't I? I read somewhere you thought of this during an acupuncture session. <laughs> it's true. It's very much true. Yeah. Wait. So, so what? The design itself, or just the concept of Miota mixed with parts, or like what? No, the um, the idea of turning a movement upside down and using cylinders to turn underneath, which that's what it is. So originally, I thought of it as an MBNF. Right. And, uh, and I, uh, why acupuncturist? Uh, because I create when I'm completely uh, cut off from the world. Yeah. I cannot create in discussions. I don't create in front of my computer. I don't create in meetings. I've always created when I'm off. I used to create a lot on planes when I used to travel. Well, it takes you back to your childhood. You were alone. Exactly. Exactly. I actually hadn't thought about that, but yeah, that's exactly it. That's my process. Yeah. And um, and so I um, like when you're when you've got twenty acupuncture needles in you, <laughs> you have to stay flat for an hour on that bed. There's nothing much you can do except let your mind roam. Right. When you let your let your mind wander and roam. That's where you 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 hit creative points. At least for me. Sure. I thought of that. But I came back from that session and sat down with Serge as my partner in the company and our CTO for the last 15 years. And I said, but actually, if we put an industrial movement in there, we can actually make it at a much lower price point, can't we? And he said, yeah, probably. Yeah, let me, let me think it out. But there are a lot of subtleties and a lot of technical innovations in that mad one, which um, it's initially I was like, why didn't anybody think about this? Now, first of all, because often people don't think differently, but also because when we started wanting to make it come to life, we realized all the technical uh, innovations we had to find and solutions we had to find to actually make it to come to life. And if you look at the case, for example, there is not one single screw you will see in it. Right. How is this all assembled, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and also, how do you get to that price with that quality of finishing, when people have a mad one in hand, they're like $3,000. How is that possible? Right, right. And so it's, it's interesting, all, all the different innovations and solutions we had to find. Uh, so it's, it, took, it took some time. Um, so yeah, all that to say it started on acupuncture. <laughs> That's so funny. Okay, just a few more, honestly. But uh, what, okay, so I also read somewhere that you 
had thought of um, a watch that was inspired by a movie you watched on an airplane. What was the movie? I can't tell you. I can't. You can't tell me the movie. It's um, yes. It was. It was actually not a very good movie. Um, <laughs> there was a, there was one one character. Okay. Name and I had a specific talent, and I can't tell you because that product is still way away because we keep on pushing it over, okay. and I don't want to give it out um, because if I give you the name, you'll there's all it's just spoil it. Totally. No, that's fair. Um, even bad movies can give great ideas. Yeah. You know, having suddenly an idea just pop into your head. Oh, that's great. What? Okay. So many would argue for, for, for many people, watches are, serve as an escape, right? Like it gets their mind off of maybe the daily rigmarole, so to speak. What, what do you do in your free time? Like what, how are you spending your free time? Or is it just watches, watches? Cause nobody has more fun than you, I would imagine. So before I had family, uh, I used to work all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, when I had my first daughter, when we had our first daughter, and now we've got, we've got two daughters, uh, every piece of free time I can find is with them. That's great. But um, I, creating, driving MBNF is such insane fun. And it's also an incredible responsibility and there've been some really tough years. I mean, entrepreneurship, I don't have to tell you, is is a complicated thing, especially when you're an an outlier doing something that nobody understands usually. Um, But it's, I I see it as, it's as Alain Silberstein who writes on his, on each of his watches used to write, uh, le plus beau est d'avoir son métier pour passion, something like that. Um, or sa passion pour métier. Okay. Basically, the most beautiful is to have your passion as a work. Right. So for me, it's it's never been work. Right. Even though I, there's been a lot of grind, but I never really saw my dad growing up. His mm-hmm. his way of telling us that he loved us was to work all the time to try and bring some money home. Right. Uh, to be able to afford a house and to be able to afford that private uh, school. And uh, that was his way of uh, showing us that he, he loved us. Right. Um, I would have preferred him to work less and spend more time with me. Sure. A football match or uh, do stuff with me, which he never did. So um, I don't want to be that dad. So now it's, I just carved out a really big part of my life and it's, it's the family now. Yeah. They always say you become the parent you wish you had. You try. You try. Right, right. Sure. What was your first watch ever? Ever, ever, ever was probably, uh, we were in that house. So I was probably seven years old. Um, it was a hand-winding little round watch from a brand called Jean Perret. I don't even know if it exists. And I remember it very well because one of the very few traditions my dad and I had was that every night before going to bed, he would come and say goodnight to me and I would wind that watch up in front of him. Oh, cool. And, uh, and then he would say goodnight to me. And just before he would switch off the light, I would always put it under the bedside table lamp so the little tritium dots and the little tritium on the hands would light up and I could actually see the time on my bedside table. 
so those are little things which trigger uh, memories. Right. Yeah, that was probably my very first watch. Well, again, not to go too deep here, but uh, you know, not seeing your dad a lot as a child, the times you did see him, a watch was present. Yeah. You know, so so maybe discovering it in the age of 24 or whatever, asking about Zizhe, it's like that maybe it was just subconscious this whole time. I remember also that my, my dad had Omegas. Okay. I would have Tissot's. That's how a good Swiss household would function. It's uh, my dad would buy the Omega, which was the higher end brand, and and get me a Tissot. And I was looking at his Omegas, which seemed uh, probably cooler. Uh, yeah. And um, but watches were not a thing because I was brought up in the quartz era. Right. And so yeah, they were actually they were. I mean, I, designs were really cool in those days. If you look at the seventies watches. Yeah, there are so much more fun than what was before and what was after. Well, it's like looking at old cars, right? They all used to look different and now they can't because of aerodynamics and fuel economy and all the nonsense, which obviously we, before we go, I have to ask you a couple car questions, given that we're on the standard age podcast, but uh, your first car, what was it? Oh, <laughs> I prefer to forget that one. Um, <laughs> Many do. <laughs> my very first car was my mom's car she gave me, which was a Fiat 127 Special, because the Special had a third door. Nice. And it actually burnt down in a parking lot. Uh, in I have no idea how that happened. I was not culprit on that one. Um, <laughs> and uh, it, it auto-ignited one day and, and it got fire. Um, so then they bought me an Opel Corsa, which you probably have no idea what that is in the Hello, US. Opel, sure. A little boxy car. And that was my parents, actually. I was supposed to get a motorcycle when I was 16. Uh, you could get these 40-kilometer motorcycles. Yeah. I had already bought the helmet. And a poor motorcycle got hit by a car in front of my mom. Not she didn't hit him, but just like when I was 15 and a half. Right, right. So completely traumatized. Yeah. And I, I get it today. I mean, I, the idea that my kids would have a motorcycle is unthinkable for me. And, um, and she said, no motorcycle. So I went bananas on her. I went yeah. complete apeshit. And, uh, and she said, okay, but then we'll buy you a car when you're 18. Oh. And that, that Opel Corsa was the car they got me, which was the car which accompanied me uh, through my uh, to my university years. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. What do you drive today? Ah, um, my my the car I love. Yeah. The one which is my um, I, so for for many I used to have cars like my watches, which were always weird and and handmade. Okay. So I had a I had a TVR for nine years. I had a TVR Griffith 500, which I loved, but it was totally, absolutely insane. And uh, uh, it's every time I got out of a, a curve, I was happy I was still alive. Right. And um, it's basically, it's, an, it's a modern AC Cobra, uh, uh, a TVR Griffith. And then yeah. I sold it um, 11 years ago. I got myself a Wiesman uh, MF4S, which is absolutely incredible car. They also went bankrupt. I mean, I'm a specialist in cars where brands go bankrupt. Um, and that uh, that Wiesman is is not only I find completely stunning, but it's it to drive. It's incredible. It's got the um, the old V8 M3 engine. Right. It's 250 kilos lighter, and right. it's no compromise. It's a aluminium monoblock uh, racing chassis. 
uh, and uh, and so when when these guys like Wiesman, they used to make 150 cars a year. Yeah, you know, four different models, and um, and so they didn't care. I mean, when you create a Porsche, you have to make sure that all the people who've got a lot of money but don't know how to drive don't <laughs> kill. Them. So of course make them hyper safe and they're incredibly safe and incredible driving machines but i mean you can do every stupid thing under the sun and you will not drive off the road right people at tvon and wiesman they assume that you know how to drive <laughs> so and it gives uh, so much more adrenaline when you drive it yeah for sure Max, I, I can't thank you enough for, for coming on the show. Um, I really appreciate your time. It's absolutely likewise. Great questions. Thank you for, for having read up so much. I mean, I'm so impressed that you, you oh. know so much. I, I'm, I'm very, very grateful. So thank you very much. I hope it's interesting for the people who are listening. And, um, and uh, I look forward to more. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure they'll be more than thrilled. Um, again, thank you so much. Hey guys, Wesley here. If you liked what you heard, maybe tell a friend about the Standard H podcast. And if you have a moment, please rate and review the show as it helps others discover this podcast. Shout out to Jensen Reed and Super Beautiful for the theme track, as well as to Clear Audio for the noise-canceling headphones. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll catch you in the next one. Take care.